National Archives podcast series. Reforming Central Government, the case of science and technology, presented by David Edgerton. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Um, I just heard some, uh, some fascinating papers that rather change, um, change direction um, now. To think about how um, the archival record can be uh, useful for uh, the study of history of science policy and indeed practice of science policy. Now, one of the most surprising uh, things I've found uh, in my time as a, as, a, as a historian interested in uh, a policy, and particularly science policy, is that probably the single most important set of um, evidence for science policy practitioners is historical, at least in, in Britain. Most of the discourse on science policy invokes a certain account of British science in the past to justify particular policy positions. And generally the argument has been along the lines uh, universities have been very bad at exploiting their inventions or the British government has not appreciated uh, scientists um, um, enough or British tanks during the Second World War were of very poor quality because of lack of investment in research. And these kind of things you may think are not very good evidence for science policy to be, to be based on, but it's remarkable to the extent to which, in practice, that is the kind of evidence, and it's often very poor evidence, that policy is, uh, in fact, um, based on. Now, in the case of um, uh, foreign policy, one of the, the, the standard uh, arguments for looking at, uh, at archives is that uh, diplomats and, uh, and, uh, and people in the foreign office basically don't tell the truth in public. Um, there's that great difference between what you say and what you and what you really uh, think. Now, uh, judging by the, um, the 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 Chilcot inquiry, that may no longer be a problem. That's to say that they they tell each other the same kind of nonsense they were telling the um, the rest of us. But certainly, but certainly in in, uh, in times past, as as uh, as diplomatic historians know, know, know what to what, there is a very clear difference, and, and and the archives are therefore essential if one is to write a, a diplomatic um, uh, history. But surely this doesn't apply if one wants to write the history of science policy. No, it, it doesn't. It's pretty much the same story at one level that's given outside the system to that that's told uh, inside. But at another level, there is a radical difference between the story that you pick up from reading what politicians had to say or, or scientists and from what government says in its own published documents to what you'd find just even by looking through a, a catalogue of um, of archives. And I want to explore that <coughs> point in a number of different ways. If you were to ask the, the question, what was the science policy of the British government, you'd go to organisations that have science in their title, first of all. And you'd find things like the Medical Research Council or the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research or the Science and Engineering uh, Research Council, British Technology Group, the National Research Development Corporation, things like this. And those bodies typically would have very extensive annual reports that would tell you in great detail what they'd been up to. So, so for example, the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, which was created during uh, the First World War, produced a, a very thick annual report that told you uh, about what each of these laboratories was, was doing, including the National Physical Laboratory in uh, Teddington. The research associations that it was, uh, that was funding all have a page or two of, of material and a lot more uh, besides. You have an exhaustive history, you think, of government uh, science in the industrial and uh, physical sciences areas. Well, that's the kind of source that uh, historical studies of British science relied on until, really, the 
uh, the 1980s. So people uh, spoke about the principles behind British science policy, and what they meant was the principles that the MRC or the DSIR employed. If you looked at, uh, for example, the, the histories that were done in the 1960s by Stephen and Hilary uh, Rose uh, about the governance of, of science in, in Britain, you'd find the DSIR and the MRC at the centre of uh, the picture. But what happens if you go into the government uh, papers, maybe the appropriation accounts, um, certainly the, the archives? Well, you get a very different, uh, a very different picture uh, indeed. You find for example, that pretty well every government department has um, uh, a body uh, that is concerned with research. If, and here I'm using science and research uh, in, interchangeably. Uh, research has been done by the Admiralty in, in very obvious uh, ways and in, in non-obvious ways. It's done by um, the War Office. It's done by the Air Ministry in the interwar years. It's done by uh, the Development Commission. Uh, related to agriculture is done by the Ministry of Health and so on and so forth. In fact, it would be nice, uh, uh, nice to find a government department that did not do research from the late 19th through, through the 20th uh, century. In fact, if you look, let's say, at the interwar years, the very well-known Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, the Medical Research Council, the Agricultural Research Council, spend considerably less on research than do some other government departments, the, the military ones in uh, particular. The biggest spenders on, on research in Britain in the 1920s and 1930s are the Air Ministry, uh, the Admiralty and the War Office with the DSIR up there, though the DSIR does a lot of uh, military research, in, in fact. So the records immediately tell us a very different story. Uh, the numbers are very, very different. The numbers of people are very different. The relationship to the state is very different. And we have, for example, the idea that British uh, scientists were in charge of their own uh, research agendas. And that's the story that's told about the Medical Research Council in, in particular. The medical researchers controlled the agenda for medical research from uh, before, well, certainly from, from 19, 1920. Um, and that was important because it meant that uh, clinicians weren't in charge of research and the Ministry of Health wasn't in charge of, uh, of research. So in the, in the histories that are written of the MRC, that was a good thing uh, because um, medics, um, medics were conservative, whereas medical researchers were, were, forward, um, were forward-looking. But that's not the typical way in which British research is directed. In most cases, government departments have very particular research policies concerned with the development of the particular uh, machines or, or, or whatever it might be that they are, they are concerned with. So, for example, the Air Ministry <coughs> has research projects um, about, for example, development of aero engines on a, on, a, on, a, on a very big scale. And it knows very well that it wants aero engines of a particular size in, 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 a, in, a, in a particular number of years and directs research uh, um, in, in, that, um, in, that, um, in that direction and so on and so forth so what happens if we want to write let's say the history of British research in the second world war well if we were to go to the DSIR records we would find really not very much of huge uh, interest though we'd certainly find a, a, um, a very very stout compendium of the research the DSIR supported published at the end of the war covering uh, the whole war you'd find exactly the same for the Medical Research Council 
you'd find also lots and lots of speeches by the secretary of the uh, the DSIR, Sir Edward Appleton, hailing his department's uh, uh, work. Though you start noticing that he start that it gives and what you might think is undue uh, importance to the contribution to the war effort of the Road Research Laboratory, for example. Um, because it's not so surprising um, once you realise that the Road Research Laboratory was part of his remit and that the Radar Research Establishment was not, the Armament Research d- uh, Department in uh, Fort Halstead was not, and so on and uh, so forth. In fact, you've got to look right across the, the board. And one very particularly interesting place uh, to, to start is the, the Prem uh, papers uh, for Winston Churchill. And you discover there that Winston Churchill was himself uh, an inventor. It's, it's well known that he was uh, closely involved in the invention of the tank in the, uh, in the First World War when he, wa- when he was first Lord of the, uh, the Admiralty at the beginning of the war. It's not so well known, in fact, hardly known at all, that in the same position in the Second World War, he's back to his, his old uh, tricks, inventing, in this case, not tanks, but gigantic earth, um, earth-cutting earth machine that was, that was going to cut a trench uh, seven foot deep and seven foot wide at something like half a mile an hour. And the idea was that you'd have 250 of these trench-cutting uh, machines on the Western Front, and, uh, uh, and they, would, they would be every half mile or so, um, uh, well, less than that. And um, as, as uh, the sun went, went down, they would start their march across no man's land. And uh, with the breaking of the dawn, uh, armoured divisions and uh, infantry divisions would march through these trenches and take over um, uh, the, the trenches of the, of, the, uh, of the Germans. Now, it sounds like fantasy. It sounds completely ridiculous. Uh, in fact, Churchill got the Chamberlain government to, um, to order... 250 of these things tried to get in March 1940 um, uh, 200 Merlin engines because each one of the things was powered by a Merlin engine Uh, Merlin engines are the engines that powered Spitfires it was not an ideal time uh, to try and get them uh, from the uh, the Air Ministry and they uh, and they and they refused but Churchill Inventor Churchill got a special department of the Admiralty, an Admiralty engineer, a naval constructor, in fact, uh, to, to work on this. Um, he, he got that department transferred to the Ministry of Supply that was actively designing these things. In fact, they ended up building four of them. They weren't tested until, until the end of uh, 1941. But in fact, Churchill kept an interest in this, in this project right to the end of the war and ensured that some of these machines were saved for future for future possible uh, use. Uh, just to, 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 to fill out the story a tiny bit, um, the, the machine um, had various uh, code names, Cultivator, uh, cultivator Number 6 um, uh, and uh, Nelly uh, is another, uh, 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 another, another name. It was Naval, uh, Naval, Naval, I can't remember what it was now, but anyway, it was Naval, uh, not Earth Moving Equipment, but it was something, <laughs> it was Naval Land Equipment, and that was it, the Naval Land Equipment uh, Directory, which is w- wonderfully uh, oxymoronic, of course. That's one, that's one example of what we'd have to look. Another would be to, to look at a, an institution that, that uh, didn't have a clear home, that it reported um, pretty directly to uh, Churchill, and had the name uh, Winston Churchill's Toy Shop. And the idea of this, uh, this, 
this particular research institution was that it would come up with essentially a lot of gadgets that would come in useful for everything from from sabotage to uh, resisting uh, inventions. And you have a, an incredibly wacky world of uh, military engineers and private inventors uh, coming together to, to to develop weapons, many of which are actually put into into use things, that, and they all have some eccentric names like like puff balls, and um, this is an anti anti tank uh, anti tank weapon, and this is not an eccentric name, but uh, except in our expert thing, spigot mortars are the are the, are the biggest thing in the in the Churchillian um, the Churchillian world, and they're used as anti tank weapons and anti submarine uh, uh, weapons as well but, um, later on. Now. Those are just uh, slightly kind of jokey examples of developments associated with Churchill. But, of course, you, if you're going to study development of, of uh, uh, research in, in the Second World War, you are talking about the development of um, very major laboratories belonging to all sorts of different ministries, the DSIR being uh, by far the least, the least important. Let me take the story forward to the early 1960s. So in the early 1960s, Science and technology come into British politics in, in the most dramatic way. Harold Wilson's white heat speech is without question uh, one of the, I don't know, five, perhaps a ten best-known speeches in 20th century, perhaps any century, uh, the British, um, British political uh, history. We all know um, the phrase, the white heat of the technological uh, revolution. Uh, in fact, um, uh, Wilson never talked about the white heat of the technological revolution. He talked about the white heat, and he talked about the scientific revolution. The, the, the term technological is uh, is used in relation to the speech um, uh, very early on, indeed. Now, the usual interpretation of that speech is that Wilson is, is promising, uh, in 1963, to uh, bring science and technology into British government on a big scale, effectively, for the first time. This is the great technocratic moment in British uh, politics, which is to be followed by this, mo- this moment of investment in computers, in aerospace, in, um, in fuel cells, in, all, in um, um, uh, new kinds of nuclear power generation and, uh, and so on. The implication is that that hadn't been happening uh, before. This was a novel development in British politics. And indeed, the standard story used to be that uh, that was, in fact, um, the case. There was a technocratic uh, project, which was new uh, in Britain, but um, uh, although Wilson and his government attempted to uh, implement it, um, the the whole programme very quickly comes to uh, a halt and essentially doesn't work. You have then that one technocratic moment, often compared with a, a possible similar technocratic moment during the Second World War. Now, if you look at the, the records and the more detailed information published by uh, Parliament, you get a very different story. Let's story goes something like this, that the uh, British uh, ministries, particularly those that come out of the Air Ministry, the Admiralty, and uh, the War Office in the uh, interwar years, ministries with the name uh, Ministry of Supply, uh, Ministry of Aircraft Production, joined together as the Ministry of Supply in 1946, are in fact spending huge amounts on research after the war, much, much more than the, um, the DSIR, for example. Indeed, they are spending, um, the Ministry of Supply, uh, the Ministry of Aviation, are spending... Uh, more on civil research and development 
than the DSIR is spending on civil research and uh, development. What are we talking about here? We're talking about civil aviation, we're talking about civil, um, civil nuclear, um, but we're also talking about electronics and a whole series of other uh, related areas of um, uh, research. If you look at Har- what Harold Wilson was aiming to do, he understood the structure of government in relation to research in the way that people from the out- outside, even, in, even people that, uh, that were supposedly well-informed about uh, research didn't, was that these ministries, the Ministry of Aviation, as it was uh, in 1963 in particular, was the ministry that controlled the, the great research budgets of uh, the state, that had the expertise to intervene in uh, industry, since it was doing that as a matter of routine, and that if you wanted to bring science technology to bear on the British economy in new ways, you'd be um, uh, well advised to use the expertise of that ministry. And in fact, what Harold Wilson was to was to do was to expand that ministry of uh, aviation into a new kind of industrial, scientific and technological ministry uh, called the Ministry of Technology. And that Ministry of Technology was by far the most comprehensive uh, procurement, industry uh, and research ministry uh, Britain um, ever had. But it had it actually between 1967 and 1970. It took Wilson a while to get this ministry uh, going. So the original Ministry of Technology set up in 1964 is really rather different um, and, um, and not really central to um, uh, the story. If we move forward a bit, Edward Heath comes in in 1970 and is known as the creator of super ministries. He brings the Department of Trade together with the Department of Industry to the Department of Trade and, um, uh, and Industry, the Department of the Environment, I think, is already created, but there, there are others that, uh, that, come, um, that, that come together. In the case of the Ministry of Technology, he actually tears apart the various elements of this uh, ministry and put them to put them into other um, uh, ministries, including what becomes the procurement executive of the uh, Ministry of Defence. So, if we look at the the history from um, uh, from the inside, as it as it were, we have a very different um, story about the ambitions and the nature of the ambitions of um, Harold Wilson. Um, uh, but there's a, a further twist, which is which is really rather uh, important. The assumption in the in the old story is that in the 1950s and early 1960s, British government and British industry lacked research and development compared to comparable uh, countries, and that this was the reason why the British economy was growing less fast than the Japanese or, or the German or the Soviet or, or the American um, economies. The idea was then that, that Labour would increase spending on research and development when it came into uh, power. And in some areas it did. But in crucial areas, it wanted to reduce research and development uh, expenditure. It wanted to reduce research and development expenditure in the military sector, but also wanted to reduce it in areas which it called uh, prestige technologies, things like aerospace things like nuclear power uh, as well. And indeed, the early years of the Labour government saw cancellations of important um, uh, projects like the the TSR-2 fighter bomber and attempts also to cancel the uh, Concorde uh, supersonic 
um, a supersonic airliner. So they're cutting back on these great projects rather than promoting them. And indeed, Anthony Wedgwood Ben, as, as he then was a Minister of Technology in the later period, uh, complained, when I mean, it stated that uh, in the future there would be no more Concords. Concord was not something he was at that stage supporting. He came to support it later. Um, oddly, um, oddly enough. So, in fact, it's, 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 it's Wedgwood Ben rather than Margaret Thatcher who originates that, um, that central concept of uh, 80s industrial uh, policy. But there's a more radical step still. The um, officials in the Ministry of Technology, the economic advisors, indeed scientific advisors uh, as well, uh, very quickly work out that Britain is not, in fact, underspending on research and development. It is probably overspending on research and development, in their view, in relation to the amount of investment that's going on, and indeed in relation to the output of the uh, of the economy. And indeed, in the late 1960s, for other reasons, the uh, the level of British research and development spending falls uh, in relation to uh, GDP, and nobody is fussed uh, at all. Indeed, under Anthony Wedgwood Ben there was a, an attempt to direct British research away from um, programmes determined in relation to the needs of the state, prestige projects, and towards commercially viable projects. There was indeed a plan to privatise, effectively to privatise, um, many of government, uh, the government research uh, agencies of, um, of the time. So the Labour government in 1964... Far from, 6470, far from um, bringing technocratic values into government, is bringing a kind of market a sense to bear, and quite explicitly in the case of Ben, uh, to the question of British, um, British technology policy. Now, the, um, the British economy <coughs> spent something like 3% of its gross domestic product on research and development in the mid-1960s. Uh, since that time... Uh, that proportion has gone down uh, very uh, significantly. It's now less than um, less than two percent. Uh, within that, um, reduced as a proportion uh, total, uh, res- uh, research work it done in universities has become much more a much more significant part of the total than it had been in the 1960s. And I just want to end um, very quickly by referring to a debate that's been happening. Uh, in policy, the science policy circles, uh, essentially about that um, research. It's suggested that government's uh, desire to direct uh, university, uh, government-funded university research, particularly towards commercially interesting uh, areas, violates a fundamental principle of the um, British funding of uh, science, a principle which is called uh, the Haldane Principle, named after R.B. Haldane, who was a Secretary for, for War before the First World War, and then uh, Lord, uh, Lord Chancellor, Chairman of, the, of a committee which reported on the machinery of government in 1918. The idea is that the Haldane Principle established that um, researchers should be should be responsible for directing research money where they think fit, and the ministers should not intervene in that process. Uh, thanks to uh, history and policy, I was invited to, um, to, to appear before the Select Committee on Innovation, Universities and Skills, um, as, as was, to talk about this holding principle, the point of view of history. 
I, I thought I knew what it what it was, and it, I knew it wasn't what um, uh, what what I just said it was, which is what they uh, think it uh, think it was. But I was prompted to do some some research, and I discovered, to my great uh, uh, joy, that the Haldane principle had not been uh, promulgated. Um, as, a, as a principle for the funding of science policy in 1918 by Holden in his Machinery of Government report. But it had in fact been um, uh, invented in 1964 by, a, um, by Lord Hailsham, uh, who had been Minister of Science and was to be Lord uh, Chancellor later on, as a way of attacking the then Labour government for its initi- initiatives uh, in the direction of uh, directing science to um, uh, to particular uh, to universal scientific research to particular policy um, uh, policy uh, uh, objectives, but but uh, Hailsham made very clear, in fact, that what he was referring to was not the autonomy of researchers; the researchers were to decide what they should do, but rather be particular bodies charged with overseeing uh, uh, university research that would be autonomous. But these bodies were typically chaired and indeed staffed by large numbers of people from the business community rather than the academic um, uh, community. So history uh, matters, but a very particular kind of history uh, matters, and the archival uh, record, the records of of Parliament and so on, can be uh, hugely useful in reminding everyone in this case that the, um, the history of policy is much more complicated, much richer than the, the histories that play such an important role in, in the policy discourse. And I'll stop there to leave us some, um, some time for discussion. Thank you very much. This event was recorded live as part of the Using Archival Sources to Inform Contemporary Policy Debates Conference on the 16th of February 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>